There is a, a documentary you can find out there. I highly recommend watching it. I've shown it to various confirmands and youth groups before. It's not particularly about Christianity. It's about butterflies, about the monarch butterfly, which, I, I don't know, doesn't matter that much to me, I suppose. It's a bug. Um, it, they're cute, though, right? They flap and flutter and are pretty. I remember as a kid in Oregon, we would get one in our classroom every year, and we'd watch it come out of the chrysalis, right? And you send it off and kind of be sad it was gone and all that. My kids have done that, too. And you see them around here in Illinois because we have plenty of milkweed. And the monarch butterfly can only lay eggs on milkweed. They can't do it anywhere else. And most butterflies have something of that sort. They can only lay their eggs on a certain plant. Which sort of starts you on the story of how uniquely weird these butterflies are. Uh, they, they are so limited in their capacity, and yet they do things that boggle the mind. And once you start adding up the, the possibility of developing the kind of mechanisms they have that do what they do, eventually you end up with such an impossible set of circumstances that it really, well, ultimately is the point of the documentary, it really begs the question, how on earth did accidental chance bring this about, even with billions of years and lots and lots of survival of the fittest death? Now, how on earth did one being that's a worm with fur on it one day decide to mutate into, I mean, this is all one mutation, mind you, I'm going to mutate into a body that can surround itself in silk that hardens and then begin to secrete juices of acid to completely destroy my entire flesh with the exception of two organs, after which I'll build an entirely new body with completely different things, new mouth, new eyes, all so diversely, nothing like before. And I come out and here I am, butterfly, what a great mutation. And then what do you got to do, poor butterfly? You got to find one just like you to pass your genes on with. So it had to happen twice in the same Happy accident. It's impossible. There's no way this thing developed by evolution. That's the point of the documentary. Well, along with that, you also have a really weird quirk in the monarch. And I don't want to take too much time on this this morning, but it, it fits with our Exodus text. It has something to do with it a little bit. And this quirk is that they all travel to a, a region in the mountains and the forests of Mexico every year. And kind of have their mating season, although they mate other places too. It's like their primary mating season. And if you were to go down there or watch the videos of it, you probably could Google it. Like, these are uh, rainforest-style trees, right? Big, big trees, and you can't see the trees. All you see is butterflies, just covering every edge of these trees. It's every monarch from North America has gone to this one spot, this little radius down there in Mexico. And they do that in one generation which is uh, pretty impressive because it takes the trip down and back, takes several months, multiple sets of weeks. And maybe you think that's not a big deal, but the problem is their life cycle is only about three weeks long, maybe four. So you have these, these little bugs that up here all summer long, they're procreating and dying every, in a three to five week cycle on rotation, multiple generations. And then in the fall, a single generation is born that lives significantly longer, up to four and five times longer than the previous generations. Flies to Mexico and back, has kids, they die in the same short generation all summer long again. Riddle me that one, Batman. They don't know. Scientists don't know how. Now, I think this is not a miracle. I think this is God's design, and it is there to show us, as it always is, how great he is. But in that design, that's sort of the question. 
The question that you have to ask when Jesus Christ, the baby, worshipped by the Magi, is revealed to be the light of the world, the eternal God, the one whom prophets and sages foretold not only as man but also as divinity to rule the world. When you, when you know that's who he is, what happens next? And particularly what happens when he starts talking? And he starts saying things that aren't what you already thought. When he starts saying things that maybe even you've been taught somewhere, some way that these things are wrong. What do you do? How do you face this, this Jesus who isn't what you expect? The unexpected revelation of God, that's who Jesus is. The unexpected salvation of God, of the people of Israel going through the Red Sea. God saving by water, not the way it's supposed to go. Water doesn't do that, and yet he does. And then they get to the other side of the sea, and they're there, and they're rejoicing, and everything's great, and they turn around, and it's a desert, and they go, wait a minute, there's no food. And they do what we always do. They complain, they whine, they wonder, they doubt, they fear. God says, I'll give you food, but he doesn't give them food in the normal way either. He makes this liquidy dew appear on the ground overnight, and then when the dew goes off in the morning, there's this, well, it's bread. They call it manna. Manna is a, 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 a semi-impolite way of saying what is it. I mean, it's not, they, they were not impious people. It's not a curse word, but neither does what is it quite capture the, um, the OMG-ishness of the entire thing. Um, so there's, there's a certain level of like, huh, in this, manna? It made me think about, you know, you, you get a treat for your kid, but it's not candy. I don't know what it, what it would be. Sometimes I'll bring home something that's a little more expensive, maybe a little liver, liver paste or something, and, and you know, put it on a crack or whatever, say, hey, Fides, come here, have this. And he says, what is it? He wants to know before he puts it in his mouth. And what do you say as a parent in this moment? You say, just open your mouth, right? Put it in. You'll like it. If I told you it was worms, you wouldn't want to eat it. Uh, so that they, they have that kind of a moment, a what-is-it moment. And when they finally just pick it up and eat it, they find it's not just bread. I mean, I've always kind of, as a kid, had thought it's like what we use for communion, like these flaky little crumbly things, right? But it, from what it says here, it's like, it's like a shortbread. It's like a cake with honey in it. So you get... You know, you get your Starbucks sweet roll in the morning in the middle of the desert. No coffee, sorry. And in the evening, you got your fats and proteins. All your macros are covered now yeah? uh, with, the, with the quail that fall at night. The Lord has it entirely planned. And okay, sure, whatever, no big deal. That's the story. We, we all learned it as kids, or we should have. But then this is the thing. What's going on with God doing the unexpected? There's a lot of ways he could have fed them besides some miraculous bread showing up out of nowhere. There's a lot of ways he could have saved them from Pharaoh, besides drowning everybody in an ocean. Why water? Why bread? And why does St. Paul think that's so important in 1 Corinthians 10? When he starts, and this, this is a continuation. Last week we had 10 verses 1 through 11. This week 11 through 22. In Corinth, remember, there's all sorts of problems going on. We won't go into the details, but it's naughty. It's a naughty place. It's a congregation where you'd get in and you'd be like, what is going on in this place? I don't want to be here. And he writes to them to try to fix all of it, but at the heart of it, at the heart of it is their lack of trust in the words Jesus gave about the Lord's Supper, 
The whole book is structured to get to that point. And then it all flows out of that point as well. And chapter 10 specifically then ties not only the Lord's Supper, but baptism back to these Old Testament texts of the Exodus where he talks about this rock that had its side split. You'll hear more about that next week. And out comes blood, excuse me, out comes water from the side of the rock. And that's, again, next week. But you have to hear Jesus, his side split with the blood and water flowing out. Blood and water. Blood and water. Wine and water. Words that Jesus gives. It all starts to swirl in Paul's own mind. He can barely keep it straight. And we don't have that part before us here. But he talks about how they were baptized into the Red Sea and the cloud. How are you baptized in a cloud? That doesn't make any sense, Paul. But he means that through that saving act by the water, they were put into Jesus. And he connects that then to us and our own links to Jesus, which really hits the point today when he says in verse 16. And before that, let me give you verse 15. I speak to sensible people. You're not idiots. Judge for yourself what I say. Look at my words. They're plain. Could it be any plainer? Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation is a little cold and sterile for my, my liking. There's not really a good way to translate it. It could be any of three. It could be participation. It could be fellowship. You could say fellowship. Or you could say communion. That would also work. But all those words in English, we've, we've got them kind of kind of their noses are tweaked a bit, right? Like You'll never hear me say this, and it's starting to wear off on people, uh, but it at least used to be that that back room back there was called the, the fellowship hall, right? The fellowship hall. And that's because back there we had this thing called fellowship. Try to define that one. What's that mean? Let's have some fellowship. I think it means be friends with each other and hang out, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's just not what fellowship in the Bible means. Christian fellowship has nothing to do with whether or not you like each other. In fact, it kind of expects you won't. You're going to forgive each other. You're going to bear with each other. Like each other? Well, maybe not. But what you will be is tied to each other. And that, not in yourselves, and certainly not in your coffee time, as much as I like my coffee, certainly not in that, but in the participation in the body of Christ. So again, so what do these words mean? Fellowship. I used to kind of struggle with this one particularly because it sounds like it should be on the water, right? A boat, a ship on the water. The problem is that English is made up of multiple different languages that kind of barfed into each other over a couple of centuries. And so that's why our spelling's so funky, why knowledge has a K on the front of it. It's because it's a Greek word that trickled down through Latin into German and finally over. So it's all weird. As a result, then, you have various sounds that sound the same that come from different languages and mean therefore that means they have different meanings right so the word ship like boat is not from the same word that fellowship comes from fellowship comes from i believe it's old norse and we still have a word that's very similar to the ship there is the word shape and history is so full of irony that we even will talk about being ship shaped so they've come together and run into each other as words but the word shape is what's in fellowship. So fellow shape. You're of the same form and shape as somebody else. Yeah? 
Communion has a similar thing you can do with it if you rip it apart. Common union. We share a common union. We share a fellow shape. We participate. Where? In the body of Christ. In the blood of Christ. In the one loaf that is broken that we eat. In the one cup that is given for us to drink. There in the one body. The one man. Dead on the cross. We die. And in his one resurrection, we live. Now again, Paul seems to think all of this is being taught to us by these Old Testament texts. He'll even go on to say, look, the people of Israel, when they ate at their altar, they were participating in that sacrifice too. It was one with them. How is it any less now? And of course, he goes at one of their major problems, the demons, and says, the idolatry you Corinthians are practicing, well, this cannot coincide with the cup of the Lord. And part of me does want to go off on a tangent and deal with this issue, the demons and the the lies, I'm going to suffice it with just a couple of words here. If you are not a Christian, that means that you deny basically two things. I mean, to really be not a Christian means I don't believe these two things. I deny them. That Jesus is risen from the dead, and that he is the eternal son of the eternal father who sends the eternal spirit. That the three in one is a reality. Now, can you, can you affirm those things and not be a Christian? Yeah, it's possible to be a hypocrite without faith. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about verbal Christian confession. All sorts of error can coexist with your faith and not completely destroy it. But once you've given those two errors, he's not risen and it's no trinity, you're outside. You're done. But... Let's take from that then. If you don't have that, at least that, that means you're a pagan. Now, pagan can mean different things to different people, but by it, it I mean that you must inevitably look for your justification, for your hope, for your certainty, for your identity somewhere in nature. Somehow, someway, this world has got to satisfy you. And you will give your life for that satisfaction. You will do all that is in you to find that satisfaction in this world. That's the definition of paganism, to worship the age that we're in. And if you are not a Christian, that's all you got is the worship of this age. And then Paul goes so far as to say, if you're doing that, you're not worshiping nothing. You're worshiping demons. Most people in America who are pagans don't go out and try to bow down to Thor or Zeus or sacrifice their cat in their backyard to make the the, the gods happy. They're not doing that yet. They're not aware of what they're doing yet in large part. They're not aware that they're listening to demons in large part. But it doesn't take long looking at our culture to say, hey, look, I mean, we don't even know up from down anymore. A boy is a girl, is a dog, is a pig, and we can kill them all when we want to. Paul would not have us participate in that. What does that mean? It means first to understand what we do participate in. What a different thing this is. Which pulls us back to our butterflies and our Exodus text. Because what God did with that bread was more than just give them miraculous bread. That was one thing by itself right there. He gave them miraculous bread. But then this miraculous bread... Did the monarch butterfly Methuselah generation thing, where six days of the week, if you held on to it, it stank. 
You'd have worms growing overnight. It was like a, a supernatural corruption of it if you didn't listen to God's word. And don't miss that either. Why did it stink? Simply because you were rejecting what God had said, which is tomorrow I'm going to give you more. You didn't believe it, so you held on to it. And so he says, well, look, that's, that's what you believe you're going to get. That's what you're going to get. So that's six days, but then on that sixth day into the seventh, into the Sabbath, it just stays another day. And then back the next week, you keep it, it's going to go bad again overnight. How does that happen? It doesn't happen. That's not how things happen. It happens when God says it happens. That's how it happens. And then, just in case that were not enough for us, he decides to up the ante a little bit. He says, okay, huh? you like that magic trick? Let me show you this one. Put an omer in a jar, and you put that jar right by the Ark of the Covenant, put it in the Ark of the Covenant, and whoever looks at it, for all the generations that the covenant is there, there it'll be. Not rotting, not stinky, no worms, preserved, perfect manna from heaven. Now, I was not there in the days of Solomon nor in the days of Jeremiah to go in and double-check and make sure it was still in the ark. But so far as the texts of Scripture are concerned, it was. It was there along with the tablets of stone that God wrote the Ten Commandments on with his own finger and with the staff that Aaron had been carrying which God caused to sprout with a budding flower a dead staff with a live flower that never withered and, again, went in the ark. Those things there as signs and testimonies, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony, that God can do what he says he's going to do. So when he says, kill a lamb at twilight and put the blood on the lintels of your house and I or my destroyer will pass over you, he does it. When he says, hold up your staff, the water's going to part, go through and then put your staff down, I'm going to kill Pharaoh this way to show my glory, he, he does it. When he says, wake up in the morning, there's going to be food. It'll be on the ground for you. Keep it one day. It's all you need. He, he does it. When he shows up as a man on a hillside outside of Galilee and begins talking about salvation, life, truth, and so many people are coming to him because of his miracles that eventually he does one more thing with bread that shouldn't be done. He hands it out, he feeds more people that can possibly be fed with it, and he gathers up more afterwards than he started with, which means somehow in the process he made more bread. Like just, just, just extra showed up. Again, this can't be. Nobody can do this. But he did. He did. And what do they do? <laughs> they chase him. They say, can you give us some more? He says, you just want food, you don't care about truth. And again, we skipped some of the verses here, so I am summarizing. You just want food, you don't care about the truth. They say, well, if we're supposed to listen to you, can you do a miracle to prove to us that we should listen to you? And you're kind of like, wait a minute. Did he just feed 5,000 people with the bread? But to be fair, maybe he didn't tell them. He didn't have a big stockpile in the corner. Maybe they didn't know. It's fine. But then they bring up Moses as their example. Look. Moses gave us bread in the wilderness, so you should do that if you're as good as Moses. And you've got to love Jesus. I mean, he's, he doesn't go right at him. He goes to the angle, but his angle's amazing. Moses didn't give you bread. You confess yourself an idolater in the very thing you say. Moses did not give you bread. The Father gave you bread. God gave you bread. Moses just did what God said. Huh? But I will give you the real bread. The eternal bread, the bread the Father really wants you to have and live forever. And they go, wow, okay, fine, Jesus, you've convicted us, give us that. And then he says, yeah, about that. That's me. I'm the bread. 
And this conversation goes back and forth more. Uh, they, they don't get it. it would, how can this man give us his flesh and blood to eat and drink? They begin to say to each other. And you would think if Jesus really wanted to avoid controversy for the history of the church's sake, he might have at that point said, well, I don't really mean you're supposed to eat my flesh and blood. What I really mean is that the, the bread and wine which you have to eat after I rise from the dead is a symbol and a picture of what I really did on the cross for you that's a separate thing from the bread and wine. But he doesn't do that. He does the opposite of that. He says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will raise you up on the last day. And at the point that he's saying these things, people are beginning to spit on the ground and leave. They're done with this. After it's all over, some of his closest followers, not the 12, but right up close to them, they turn back and no longer walk with him. It's a hard saying, this thing, that I must, must eat Jesus. But before we go any further into that, I guess we could just announce, Lord where else should we go than those words of life? Let the chain all line up for you now. Has the Father who sends the Son always intended to do exactly what He says? Has any of our deception, our doubt, our confusion ever gotten in the way of Him achieving His purposes according to His Word? Has even our evil and our wretched rebellion stopped Him from making the creation good, new, eternal, and with us in it. No, none of that. And all the way along has what we could ask or imagine been able to dampen what he does because it needed to be done for the salvation of the whole world. No. And so when he wants to move a sea, he moves a sea. And when he wants to make bread out of dry, dry ground, wet, wet ground, he makes bread out of wet ground. When he wants to become flesh and walk among us, he becomes flesh and walks among us. And when he wants to let our sins be on his back, he dies on a cross. When he wants to rise from the dead, he does. When he announces, look, I did this all for you, and to guarantee it, I give you something very simple. Three which agree, three witnesses, water, bread, wine. The Spirit preaches it. Does he have the power to do with bread whatever he wants? How can you look at anything in the Bible and say, no, he doesn't? Does he have the power to do with his body what he wants? How can you look at anything in the Bible and say, no, he doesn't? It almost makes you have to ask, and beg the question, what are, what are we so afraid of American Christianity? Why are we so afraid of a God who's actually here in our midst? Do we really learn nothing about how making him stay outside the camp isn't good for us? We want him in the camp. We want him in our tents. We want him in our bodies. We want to be his body. Far from being a terrifying thing, this is the gospel. Emmanuel, God with you. Yes? Epiphany, the season of light. Light breaks into darkness. Darkness doesn't understand, but the light keeps shining. He shines at the Jordan River, splitting water and heaven to give you promises. He shines on that hillside, feeding out the bread to help you see what he's able to do. In a few weeks, he'll be shining on the hillside again, his face streaming like the sun, because he is who he is. Also that we'll trust that when he goes down the hill into the darkness of, of Lent, 
We don't lose sight of what he's able to do and understand he's doing it all on purpose. It's never an accident. And it's all in order to save you. In the name of Jesus, amen.